you open your Bibles with me today to the book of Joshua as we continue our series working through this book. And turn with me to Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2, and we'll study the entirety of the text, but I'd like us to just read the first six verses at the start. Joshua chapter 2, beginning in verse number 1. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go! View the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here to tonight to search out the land. Then the king uh, of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went, saying, I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she hid. She had laid in order on the roof. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, all that we need is you. We have sung that, we have considered that already. But now as we turn to the book that tells us all about you, Lord, I pray that you would grant that we would meet you in its pages, that we would hear your voice as the word is spoken, and that our hearts may become the throne room in which you find you take your rightful place. For we ask this in your name. Amen. Do you know anybody in your life that likes surprises? How many of you like surprises? Is there anyone out there that likes surprises? Okay, a couple of you. Uh, how many of you in your life know someone that likes surprises? They like to be surprised? Okay, good. Uh, I'm sure we all have people like that, and from time to time, those kinds of people can be quite irritating. Uh, because, because it can't just be a birthday party, it has to be a surprise birthday party. It can't be just an anniversary dinner, it has to be a surprise anniversary dinner. And, 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 and while those people, maybe you're one of those people, uh, can be a bit irritating from time to time, it is very nice when you are actually able to you know, put on the party hat, hide behind the couch, and the person walks in and you shout, surprise, you're actually able to surprise someone. It's also great when you're the recipient of that surprise. Uh, maybe not at first, it's a jump scare, and you're like, why'd you do that? Uh, but, but at the end of it, when you look back and you look and you consider the intention and the motives and the thought that was put behind the surprise, it, it really sticks out in your mind. Well, let me ask you this question. Does God like surprises? See, that's kind of an interesting question. I haven't thought about it like that before. Would you say that as you open the Bible and you read from passage to passage and story to story, uh, that you always find yourself at the end of the story going, would have expected that. Ah, that makes sense. It's, it's so boring. I just 
went through the story, nope, that was the ending I was expecting. Or have you ever come to the Word of God, to a story as it's unfolding, and you go, wow. You know, I, just, I never would have expected the Lord to do that. I would have never expected that to be the outcome. I submit to you that, that God does, in fact, like surprises. I say that because I think the Lord delights in showing us aspects of his character that we might not expect or that we might not be expecting to show up in a particular way that it does. One of the most remarkable aspects of his character that the Lord delights in showing us and surprising us even with is his mercy and his grace. God delights in showing mercy and grace. And and, and one of the ways that we learn that is from the occasion that we come to in Joshua chapter 2. In Joshua chapter 2, we meet a woman named Rahab. And we understand that there will be spies and there's so much going on that this is a narrative. This is a story. And we don't want to miss the context of the story because we want to pick up all the pieces of the story to, at the end, put the story together. So what has happened so far? Well, in Deuteronomy 34, we learn uh, here, just by way of introduction, this will work today. Moses, the servant of the Lord, has died. We've rehearsed that, we've said that over and over, but let that not so quickly pass over you that you miss the significance, because the people of Israel certainly did not miss the, uh, the significance of their leader Moses passing away. Moses was the leader that God had ordained to lead the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery for 400 years, out of that land and bring them into the wilderness in an effort to bring them to the promised land. God had used Moses to uh, have the Ten Commandments come down from Mount Sinai. God had spoken to Moses. God had given Moses the opportunity to shepherd the people and to uh, give them what they needed, to provide food for them in such a way that they would bless the Lord. Uh, Moses instituted the, the tabernacle, and that, of course, is talked about all through Exodus and the later chapters, the construction of the, of the tabernacle and so forth, chapters about 25 to 40, are, are a lot of discussion about that. And so Moses has done quite a lot. Moses has led a rebellious people, people who were stiff-necked and rebelled against him. But he was not without his faults, of course. He could not enter the, the promised land himself because of his own faithless response and disobedience to the Lord's command in Numbers 20 to speak to the rock, and instead Moses struck it out of anger. And so the Lord dealt with him, but Moses was someone who was a great leader. God, in his place, in the place of Moses, raised up his successor, a man by the name of Joshua, a man who was found to have the Spirit of the Lord on him and a consistent pattern of obedience. Uh, so Joshua, now the leader of the people, God has commissioned him. He has told him to be strong and courageous. He has lifted him up to do the tasks that he has done. Joshua would be strong and courageous as he led the people of God, as he trusted in God's promises, as he took courage in God's presence, and as he was obedient to the word of God. And in Joshua 1.9, for the third time in that chapter, the Lord says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Right away we find Joshua with that consistent pattern of obedience. Right away jumping to obedience and calling the officers of the people in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11 to help the people prepare their provisions. For in three days' journey, the people will cross over into the land. So right away Joshua is obedient. He is getting the people together uh, to do these 
things. And so at the end of chapter 1, where we left off last time, the, the officers of the people respond to Joshua by saying, we are going to obey the Lord, we're going to obey you, and if anyone disobeys you, may they surely be put to death. So they believe that obe obeying Joshua as the leader was obeying the Lord himself. For Joshua was hearing from the word of the Lord. How do we know that? Well, because in chapter 1, verse 8, uh, the Lord says, This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. Joshua was speaking from the Lord, and he was leading the people that way. But as we come to chapter 2, it's almost like a weird narrative break. There's narrative happening, but logically, and, and many have concluded this, that logically we could move right from the end of chapter 1 to the beginning of chapter 3, as far as time goes. But while that's all ongoing, chapter 2 is here intentionally, purposefully by God to demonstrate to us the surprising mercy and grace of God. So I want to look at this chapter with three headings, action, confession, and covenant. So let's look at the first one together, action. In just three days, the people of Israel, as I said, will make their way into Canaan. But there is work to be done in these days. And so in great wisdom, Joshua sends spies to scope out Jericho, to scope out the land. Look at verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And right away we see spies on a mission. Joshua here is demonstrating some real leadership skills and ability as he knows a, a thing or two about spying himself from past experience. If you remember back in Numbers 14 when the Lord instructed Moses to send 12 spies into the land, and I've referenced this before, 10 of those spies came back with a negative report. A report saying, we are so small, we are so weak compared to the, the cities and the people of Canaan. We are like grasshoppers and they are like giants and there's no way that we can defeat them but two of the spies were were trusting the lord those uh, spies were men by the name of joshua and caleb joshua and caleb told moses no we can conquer them we can go into the land and we will and and we can do this because the lord is with us they were earnestly trusting the lord but because of the response of others and because of many other events including a rebellion against Moses, a rebellion against God, where they refused to enter the land. The Lord made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years till that previous generation had died out. Now, 40 years later, they stand at the bank of the Jordan River ready to go into the land, the same land, the same spot with a new leader, with the same great commander, Yahweh. But Joshua sends two spies into the land. It's interesting Again, referencing the two spies were faithful in the reports earlier. Now Joshua sends only two spies into the land. He knew that Jer taking Jericho was going to be a monumental task. Jericho was a great walled city. It was a large city. It was uh, considered by many to be an impossible city to defeat. And so in Joshua's mind, there was a great need to evaluate things, to evaluate the terrain and the conditions that Israel might expect to encounter as they crossed in into Canaan. Now, on the one hand, it's not all that surprising, is it? That Joshua would send spies. It makes sense to, if you're going to go to war, you kind of got to get away in the land. You got to figure out what's going on. And, and so, and on the one hand, it's not odd at all. But on the other hand, it's, it's very odd because wasn't Joshua the one who was supposed to trust the Lord? 
was him sending spies into the land a result of him not trusting the Lord? Was he uh, lacking faith? Well, I don't think I don't think so at all. God never presents in the Scripture the sovereignty of God is somehow eliminating human responsibility. Just because God promised to give victory over the Canaanites didn't mean that Joshua didn't need to do his due diligence. As one commentator put it, there is no contradiction in the Bible between trusting God and making proper plans. problem with us, though, is that we rather make our plans first and then consult God to see if, we're good with, if he's good with it, rather than going to the Lord first and then making plans. Well, Joshua's been with the Lord. He spent time with the Lord. And so in wisdom, he sends the spies in. This is not passivity. Uh, this, is, this is not a, a passive or an active faith. We should understand that for us as well, faith is not a call to inactivity. It is not a call to passivity. Rather, faith is a call to take action. To take action on the basis of God's reliability. On the basis of God's promises and on the basis of God's commands. Now, we can assume about these spies, of course, that they would have put away from them anything that would have identified themselves as a Hebrew. They would have put on Canaanite clothing. They would have tried to mask any appearance of being a Hebrew. And so they make their way from where they were camped all the way north to the ford so that they could cross over more easily into the, uh, across the Jordan and go across into the west side, the hills, to go into Jericho. And so they go into the city. And their goal was likely to come through a certain gate where lots of tourists, lots of visitors would have come in so that they could appear uh, there and they could be presumed uh, as not strangers in the land that would cause them harm, not as spies. They could go in there undetected. And they would quickly go into the hustle and bustle of the crowded streets in Jericho. Uh, you know that whenever you, you move to a new place or you go and visit a new place and you're planning on being there for some time, you might want to go to some place to find out kind of more about the place you're living in. Uh, so in some places, it might be a barber shop. You might go into a barber shop, sit around with the old heads that are talking, and you find out what's going on in the town. Find out the town gossip. Uh, in, in eastern Kentucky, in the town of Bonita that my wife and I lived in, Angela longer than I, uh, there's, there's a couple of places you can go to kind of find out the town gossip. And uh, there, there's there's no place like getting uh, no no place better to get town gossip than go to a place where they're smoking a cigarette while they're making fried chicken, and that's the uh, the local town market in uh, Oneida, Kentucky. It's a gas station, a pizza place, and fried chicken and everything else all at once. And uh, you could go in there and you could find out all kinds of stuff that was going on, uh, get all the gossip that you needed. Probably didn't need to be there for that, but you could do that if you wanted to. Well, I kind of get that that's the picture of the spies. They want to go into a place where they can find out what's going on. Uh, find out what's going on in the city so that they can best take the land. Well, at the end of verse 1, we're told that they end up in the house of Rahab, the prostitute, and they lodge there. We shouldn't read too much into this. It was probably akin to uh, travelers passing through one of those old western towns with a saloon. Yeah, sure, there might have been prostitutes there and drinking there, um, but it was a place to spend, spend the night, perhaps, or catch up on the local news. And so they would be less likely to be noticed and detected as they went into a place like that. They'd be able to gather information about the city, the gates, which ones were easiest to go through, how many guards were there, how many gates there were in the city, 
And so this is probably the kind of establishment that, that Ray had was running, kind of an inn, a place for travelers to come through as well. And it explains why the Israelites chose to lodge at her house. Now, over the years, there's been an effort on the part of many to sanitize Rahab's profession, that she wasn't really a prostitute, that she really wasn't selling her body for money. But that is not true at all. And while there, the text is careful to avoid any connotation of sexual relations between the spies and Rahab, it's clear that she's a prostitute. That's the normal meaning of the Hebrew word that is there. And what's more is when you look at the New Testament references to it, they use the word, they use a word that can only be translated as prostitute or along those, those synonyms there. What this means is, however she ended up in the profession, Rahab was an immoral woman. A lifestyle of prostitution can't help but leave someone with a sense of moral desensitation. So not only was she a prostitute, but she was also a Canaanite. She no doubt grew up worshiping false gods, pagan gods. She was a sinner. Yes, like the spies, spies were sinners. But she was a hardened sinner. She knew a life of immorality and sin. And you can see that description in the text. And, and this makes Rahab a very unlikely convert. Why do I say that? Well, because in our minds, there are certain people that God would most definitely save. And certain people that God most definitely would not save. But this sinner, Rahab, would become a trophy of God's mercy and grace. And that's the wonderful story of it as it unfolds here. Houses like Rahab's were actually built into the city wall with a window that would, would come out, of, out on the city wall, and that will become important later. But that's where she was living, probably the lower class housing along the city wall. The narrative moves quicker than perhaps I'm speaking, but needless to say, the cover of the spies did not last long. Someone noticed these spies coming into the city, and right away, in verse 2, we find that they informed the king of Jericho that they've entered Rahab's house. Look at verse 2. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So the spies are putting their lives at risk in obedience to Joshua and in obedience to the Lord. It is a courage of faith that leads them here. And yet, so quickly, they are found out. So let's, let's pause here. Is, is God really sovereign? Is God really in control? If God was in control, why did these spies who were trying to obey Joshua and obey the Lord get found out so quickly? Well, that's a question that's tough. But the answer is a lot less tough in one way. Because it's not just the spies that are on a mission here, but it's actually God that's on a mission. That's letter B. God is on a mission. The spies are putting their life at risk, of course. This is a crisis. But it's often in a crisis that we learn how faithful God is. God is on a mission, and we see this beginning in verse 3. You have men sent from the king knocking on Rahab's door. Look at it with me in verse 3. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. So this is the exciting scene in the movie. 
What's going to happen? The scene shifts quickly to Rahab's house. The men are at the door, pounding down the door, ready to take the men by force. But this is all providential. God had a plan through this. This event ends up leading to Rahab's deliverance. And Rahab's deliverance becomes critical to the storyline of the Bible. And what Rahab does here is told later. Our perspective on what God is doing sometimes is severely, severely limited. And something that might seem to contradict God's purposes might actually turn out in the very way that God has chosen. Perhaps these men were at the door for this reason, for them to be turned away and for God's will to be prospered. William Cowper put it in a hymn, Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace behind a frowning providence. He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bird may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. So the men show up at the door and they say, hey, Rahab, where are the men? We know they came into your house. There's no hiding it. People saw it. The king sent us. Give us the men. And what does Rahab do? Well, we quickly discover, and we'll see this more later, but Rahab has now come to faith. She's now come to know Yahweh. And the first act of faith that Rahab engages in is, catch this, a lie. Her first act of obedience to Yahweh results in a lie? Wait a second, that doesn't make much sense here. You can't be serious. Well, she helps the spies. We see this in verses 4 uh, through 6. Or verses 4 and 6. Verse 4, but the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. So we're kind of getting some flashback scenes here. We're kind of seeing uh, a scene from one perspective and a scene from another. Verse 4 flashes us back to the fact that Rahab had hidden the spies. Verse 6, but she had brought them to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. This flax was an agricultural product and one of Canaan's annual crops. And in the ancient world, flax provided fibers, and for linen, it was actually a lighter weight that was more comfortable than wearing wool. And Rahab likely harvested or had been given some of this flax that was laid out on the roof to dry. And so conveniently, it provided cover for these spies she had decided to hide. But she lied. In verse 3, as we have read, the Un unnamed soldiers of Jericho come, and Rahab tells them they're not there. Verses 4 and uh, verses four and 5, as we've read, tell us what she said to them. Look at the text. But the woman, Rahab, had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said to the soldiers, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. Lie. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. Lie. I do not know where the men went. Lie. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. Lie. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Rahab is lying. And as we're told, uh, the, the soldiers eventually run away after her direction, but she is a liar. So this raises a very obvious and important question. 
Is it ever okay to lie, even if it furthers the purposes of God? Well, let's pray and go home. <laughs> What's interesting is that the passage doesn't comment on the lie, on the morality of her lie, or of even her being a prostitute. It's just informing us of details of the story. And so sometimes it leaves us asking these kinds of moral dilemma-type questions. Well, the ethical problem has been exacerbated by the fact that the New Testament twice seems to actually commend Rahab for protecting the spies. And all of this is part of a larger ethical discussion about lying and whether in certain circumstances it, it might be sinful. Maybe you've read the book The Hiding Place by Corey Tinboom, where she did something very similar for the Jews. This is a complex issue. And there are all kinds of views and interpretations on the issue of permission to lie. And really good and godly people have weighed in and said that it's okay that she did. I don't, have to, I don't have time to go into all the nuances of their arguments today, but quickly some will claim that it's a lesser of two evils. Save a life uh, for someone else's life. And in so doing, God will actually dismiss the lie. Some will say that this constitutes an act of war. So everything done in war is okay. In compact, you forfeit the, the command to tell the truth. I, I don't know about all that. I, I can only say what the scripture says. And what I do know from the scripture is that it's very clear that God never commends lying. God communicates very clearly in the scripture that he is a God of truth. And so just because the motives were good and right does not mean that the lie was acceptable. John Calvin noted that Rahab's lie doesn't sufficiently consider how precious truth in the sight of God is. It is wrong to lie because it can never be right to be contrary to the nature and character of God. God is truth. The scriptures uniformly condemn deception and untruth, and the scriptures exalt truth. Our Lord Jesus himself epitomized truth. No falsehood was found in him. Though the Pharisees and religious leaders wanted to find falsehood in him, Jesus never did. And today we as the body of Christ are to live as representatives of Christ to a lost and dying world. So, Ray, let me just say this, that Rahab's lie, a sin, was actually a demonstration of, remarkable, of a remarkable act of faith. I'm not excusing the lie, the lie was sin. Yet for her and her immature infant faith, it was a remarkable act of faith. This act was motivated by her love for Yahweh. And so when we see Rahab in light of her background, in light of the fact that she had no knowledge of the explicit revelation of God as the Israelites did from Mount Sinai. And the fact that she was immersed in a culture that was obviously deceptive, sensual, and dishonest. I can say that it probably never occurred to her that she was even lying. She was probably just trying to help. And I think we ought to be careful about how we judge those that are less mature, perhaps, than we are in faith and instead come alongside in the church, help correct it, and help them live the truth out. And we ought to be careful that we don't keep up self-righteousness for ourselves, 
as though we don't sin as well. So just a note there. I know that will not adequately suffice some of your consciences or the amount of conversation we could have later. But suffice it to say, lying is always sin. Rahab lied, and yet still God used her sin to accomplish his purpose. Well, the king's men believe her, and they take off on this elusive report, and on this elusive suspect, and the gates of the city close behind them. Verse 7, so the men pursued after them, on the way to the Jordan, as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. The good news for the spies was that the king's men were gone, but, they, but the bad news was that the gates were now closed, and they were trapped inside the city as well. So we should ask the question about Rahab's lie and about the situation in which they find themselves. What would possess a Canaanite woman to betray her people, to risk her life in housing spies from an invading nation, and an army bent on destroying her city? I mean, why not give up the spies to save her own skin? Well, that brings us to the next part of the story. And the only reason she would have done this because of her faith in the Lord. And we come to the second part of the sermon this morning, which is confession. Confession. <clears throat> Verse 8 reads, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof. So she goes up there and talks with them, and we see what Rahab says to them, beginning in verse 9. I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. What remarkable words from a Canaanite prostitute woman. Rahab knows all about God's care for them. As they left Egypt and they journeyed through the wilderness, she confesses that she knows that God uh, had delivered them from the kings of the Amorites, Sion and Og. And here in her own words, she boldly confesses that Yahweh is the true and living God. She believes he has created all things, that he's present with his people, and she knows that Yahweh has given the land in which she currently resides to Israel. And she admits that the Canaanites were now living in fear of the day when the people of God were going to come and possess the land. This confession, though, shouldn't surprise us, because... For one thing, Moses had sung these very words back in Exodus chapter 15. So would you pause here in Joshua 2 and go over to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15 is the song of Moses. The people were murmuring and complaining in chapter 14 of Exodus, but the Lord had actually provided manna for them, provided food for them to eat. And Moses now sings a song of deliverance, a song of hope, in Exodus chapter 15. Moses sings in verses 15 and 16. Now the chiefs of Edom 
dismayed. Trembling seizures, or trembling seizes rather, the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Notice the use of the same words. You might underline them and write a reference to Joshua chapter 2. Those words melted away. The inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Verse 16, terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. So the terror that Rahab expressed, that the people of Canaan have, was something promised by the Lord and sung by Moses. If you go over a few chapters to Exodus 23, the Lord says the very things that Moses has just sung. In Exodus 23 and verse 27, this is the Lord speaking. And he says here in this verse, I will send my terror before you, that is, before the Israelites, before you, Moses, and will throw into confusion against all the people whom you shall come and make all your enemies turn their backs to you. The Canaanites are now turning their backs in real time in Joshua 2. They are turning their backs to the Lord. They are cowering in fear, just as Moses sung, and just as the Lord said would happen. So now if you go back to Joshua 2, Rahab is now just recounting to the spies that that is exactly what is happening in Jericho. No doubt she's heard the conversations in the marketplace where people have talked about the great defeats that Israel has won. And so they are afraid of Israel. And they are afraid of Israel because they are afraid of Israel's God. Now Rahab's words to the spies in these verses, verses 8 through 11, mark a real step of faith based on what she knew about Yahweh and Israel. Rahab's words express a true belief in God's promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, that God would give the people the land. There's a tremendous work of faith and God's grace in the heart of the hopeless woman. What a faith has been found in Rahab. And I think that's why centuries later, Rahab would be mentioned in the New Testament the way that she is. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 29 to 31, she's mentioned in the Hall of Faith. For we read in Hebrews 11, listen to these words. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. That's what's going to happen in Joshua 6. We'll get there. Verse 31 of Hebrews 11, by faith Rahab. By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. We learn here that Rahab was delivered from judgment to fall upon Jericho because of her faith. She knew that Yahweh was the true and living God. She believed God's promise that he was going to give his people the land. In James chapter 2, verse 24, James writes that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Oh, whoa, whoa. Hang on there. There's a context to that. We'll, we'll see that. 
James says a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way also was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Is there a contradiction in Scripture? Paul in Romans chapter 4 makes clear that people are not justified by works, but by faith in Jesus Christ, by faith Abraham was justified by faith. In the same in, in the chapter we just read, Hebrews 11, it says this. James, in his letter, and in Sunday school we've been studying that for a number of weeks, James is writing to help his readers understand that a true and genuine sincere faith, a, a person who's actually justified by faith, will prove their justification by the living out of good works. Rahab here is being commended for her act of good works that was done in faith because she had faith. In this way, Rahab's life demonstrates and highlights God's grace really in a particular way. How do we know that Rahab's faith was a living faith? How do we know that Rahab's faith was deeper than just words? Because it was lived out. Imperfectly, with failures, but it was being lived out, and the scriptures commend her for it. We'll come more to this in the application portion of the of the sermon, but but true faith is always lived out. True faith is, is demonstrated by our works, by how we live. When we were just in Colossians chapter two, a couple months ago. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. We are to walk in the Lord. We are to live out our faith in the Lord. And while all of this is is wonderful, I think a, a marvel of this text is that God is still working in people today. He is still taking sinners and making them trophies of his mercy and grace, transforming them through their own failure, through their own mistakes, but he's taking them and he's using them and he's molding believers to become more like the Lord Jesus. And the confession that Rahab makes here is even more beautiful in light of the covenant that she now makes with the spies. So we come to the third movement of the text, and that is covenant. Verses 12 through 24. Look at verses 12 and 13 first. Then. Now then, this is Rahab speaking to the spies, now then, Please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Please spare us. Show us mercy. She is pleading with the spies to assure her that she and her family would be spared when God leads the Israelites to have victory over Jericho. Just as I'm risking my life for you, please, please save me. And indeed, in verse 14, the spies agree and assure her of this. Verse 14 says, And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell the business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. So the spies 
make this life-for-life swap conditional on Rahab's silence about their agreement. Only then will they keep their oath as well. She accepts this in verse 15, because the gates of the city wall had been already closed. She says in verse 15, or it says there, Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built on the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. And then afterward you may go your way. So the spies will go down a rope outside of her window to escape. She tells them to go toward the hills, the west of the city, uh, because the, uh, the men from the king would have gone the other way. Uh, they would have returned from the, to the east side of the city. And after three days, we're told later that these men returned from Jericho, and they come out of the hills toward the camp. Verse 17, the covenant continues. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Um, so, so just before they go out the window, just before they leave, to make sure that everyone is on the same page with the agreement, they recap the plan and add one more element. Verse 18, Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window, through which you will let us down. And you will gather your house, uh, gather in your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all in your father's household. Then, if anyone goes out the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is, in you, uh, who is with you in this house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. Many Christians in the earliest days of the church would believe that this scarlet cord that she was instructed to hang out the window was a symbol of Christ's shed blood. Now, when there's no, now there's no dispute that the theme of redemption because of Christ is woven all throughout the Scripture. All throughout the New Testament, there's no doubt of that. And there's no doubt that Rahab was of the bloodline of Christ, according to Matthew chapter 1. But I personally don't think that the cord is symbolic. Of the blood of Christ for a couple reasons. Among one of them is that the New Testament never makes mention of this cord again. And often when there is a significance to something like that, there is reference back to it, and there's none in the entire New Testament. There's more reasons than that, but it's possible that the color of the rope was just red. Sometimes things are just the way that they are. So the caveat was here that if she put this cord out, then Rahab and her family would be spared. If anything, it would be parallel or similar to the Passover, not necessarily directly to the blood of Christ. In, in the Passover, of course, there was blood that was painted on the doorpost of the home, and the death angel would pass over those homes. So maybe it's similar to that, that there would be a passing over of judgment for her house and her family. And while I don't necessarily think that the scarlet cord is symbolic of the blood of Christ, I do think it is a significant act of faith on the part of Rahab and a part of the spies together that they would come to an agreement on this, that she would be so identified by the cord, by this red cord, that the judgment would not come to her. Verse 21 assures us of a commitment to follow through on the terms of the covenant that have been laid out. Verse 21 and she said, according to your words, so be it. 
Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. So she agrees with the plan and puts the cord out of her window. And again, I think the point here is that Rahab's faith in the Lord is continuing to be demonstrated by her following through on the act of the covenant that she's made. Verse 22, they departed, that is the spies, they departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. God was looking out for them. God was sovereignly caring for his people. God is accomplishing his purposes. Verses 23 and 24, then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. Upon their return, they go right to Joshua, right to their commander, and they explain everything. And it's unlikely that they actually gained much by way of military strategy and information, right? But they had learned at least one thing on this spy mission that turned out to be a great help to Joshua and to the people of Israel. What is that? What did they find out? Verse 24. And they said to Joshua, Truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Underline, if you would, those words, melt away. Melt away. Same words used previously before in Rahab's words to the spies, in Exodus 15, and Exodus 23. The hearts of the people, the, land, the people of the land, their hearts, their souls, if you will, have melted away because of us. They're rehearsing what Rahab had told them. They're rehearsing what Moses had sung and what the Lord had promised. All of this reminds me, really, of the signs that God gave to Gideon, where God tells him and judges, if you're so scared, go down and hide right outside the camp of the Midianites. So Gideon does that. He overhears a conversation between two Midianites, one of them said, I had this dream that a stone was going to come through this camp and destroy us. And uh, the, other, the other guy in that, uh, that, that story say, yeah, that's what's going to happen. Gideon is going to come down and defeat our camp. And so it's almost as if the Canaanites have had these dreams or had these thoughts, knowing that the Lord was going to destroy them. And their hearts and minds have been melted away. And yet God is still merciful and kind. God's mercy and kindness do not mean that he does not judge. It does not mean that he does not destroy. It does not mean that he doesn't deal with sin. But he is surprising in his mercy and grace to sinners that don't deserve it. He's merciful to you. He's merciful to me. You and I here are sitting and standing in great need of God's continued mercy and grace. If you're a Christian this morning, you've received it. You have it in Christ, but you still need it. And the great hope is that in the gospel, we keep running back to God's mercy and grace. It continues to find us, continues to encourage us. So how do we walk out of your change? What do we take away from the text? Well, there's many things, but I've narrowed it down to four. Number one,
There is great hope for sinners through Christ and the gospel. So repent and believe. Where do you get that in the text, Dan? Well, if anyone was unfit for the kingdom of God, it was Rahab. Yet fast forward to the New Testament to Matthew's genealogy, and we learn that Rahab turns out to be a far more important person to God's covenant of faith than anyone realized at the time. From her descendants would come the promised Messiah, the Savior King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would redeem any sinner who comes in in faith. Only sinners who come to the Lord in repentance of faith escape the wrath of God because Christ has paid in blood for their sin. And brothers and sisters who know the Lord today, we have found a refuge in Christ. We have found a place to dwell in. And it's all because of grace. Rahab teaches us that not just Jews, but all ethnicities can find refuge in the God of Israel. Rahab was rescued not because she was less sinful than the rest of Jericho's population or of Israel's population. Her very livelihood underscored that fact. But because her faith was in Yahweh, in whose name she had entered into a covenant of faith, she was rescued. Rahab is significant not because of her faith, but because of who her faith was in. He elevated Rahab from the lowest parts of society to the highest place of honor. And the truth is that every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. We are all the lowest parts of society when it comes to our sin. And you say, my sin's not as grievous as so-and-so's sin. And yet your sin will still send you to hell. The truth of the gospel is that a prostitute is no more unfit for the kingdom of heaven than you are. We're all in need of God's forgiveness. We're all in need of God's salvation. And God has made salvation available to all who will repent and believe the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that God's grace is offered to you. You don't deserve it. There's nothing you can do to earn it. Rahab didn't deserve salvation, yet God in his grace chose to rescue her, and save her soul and rescue her physically from destruction. This morning, don't see yourself as unsavable. And don't see yourself as not needing a Savior. You're most in need of being saved from sin. And yet Christ died for sinners like you, and thank God Christ died for sinners like me. And so if you're here this morning without God and without hope, won't you come and believe? Won't you repent of your sins and, and come to Christ? Won't you know him? Second, saving faith will always show itself by works. It's true that Rahab was saved by grace at the moment of her faith. And yet the true quality of her faith was demonstrated by her actions of risking her life to save the Israelite spies. That's what James reflected on earlier. That's what Hebrews commends her for. And the truth is this. 
It's very simple. True saving faith in Christ will show itself in how a person lives. And so if you are living a life full of immorality, full of sin, with no desire to confess it, with no desire to live for God, it is likely that you don't know God at all. If someone professes in faith, professes faith in Christ, but doesn't really love him, and doesn't obey him, at least not when it's inconvenient, then their faith is dead. It's not a saving faith. One who truly believes in Christ will love him and will be willing to die to themselves, to take up their cross and follow him. So if your faith has made no difference in your life, then you need to wake up. And you need to take stock of your spiritual condition. It may be that your faith was superficial or is superficial. But the grace and hope of the gospel is still the same. So come back to the Lord. There is mercy with the Lord. There's grace with the Lord. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is so much more. Third, God strengthens the faith of his people to obey his commands. God strengthens the faith of his people to obey his commands. God is gracious to confirm our faith and strengthen it. So, have you spent time recently meditating on the ways in which God has strengthened you in trials and difficulties to trust Him? Have you spent time meditating on God's words so that you might find strength and encouragement to live out what you know the Scripture teaches in your real day-to-day -day life? God strengthens us to obey him, to share the gospel, to proclaim him, to live a life that is honoring and pleasing to him, to love your spouse, to love your kids, to be a hard worker, a faithful employee, to be a faithful church member. God gives you strength to obey his commands. Fourth, God's sovereignty often works in unexpected and unforeseen ways. God's sovereignty often works in unexpected ways. I'm sure the spies had no plan to be found out so quickly and seek refuge in the home of a prostitute, and yet God was working to show himself to the spies and give them confidence that God was actually doing what he said he would do. I'm sure that Rahab had no intention of meeting God. She was just living her life. And yet God met her. God's mercy is surprising to us sometimes because we don't spend enough time reflecting on it. We are in great need of his continued mercy and grace. Praise God that though our sins are many, God's mercy is much, much more. Would you pray with me? Father, we bless you because your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you for the opportunity to read these ancient words 
in such a way that they would tell us and encourage us and remind us of your surprising and marvelous grace and mercy to sinners just like us. We are people who stand and sit undeserving of your mercy. You know, you, we thank you that you've taken us and cleansed us, forgiven us, removed our sins as far as the east is from the west, making us new creations. We are your people and the sheep of your pasture, and we thank you that you are our good shepherd. Lord, I ask that you take my, my attempt at sharing your word and that you take your, take your truth and, and plant it deep in us. And guide us now into closer fellowship with you and obedience and faith for your glory and our joy. And this we pray in Jesus' name.